I'm not going to take up too much of your time because um, I think it's important to hear from a few people who maybe know a bit more or have spent more time reading up on this kind of stuff than me. But just very quickly, a few things, I suppose. Um, 24 years ago when Debbie and I got married, we ended up in uh, uh, France and at Mont Blanc. And we stood on the, the glacier there in September of 1997. Okay, we got married very young. But they told us where the glacier used to be and how far down the mountain it used to come and how every year it was receding. And as it happened, the next big holiday that we had was 17 years ago. And this time we were standing on a glacier in Canada, in the Rockies. And again, they were telling us about where the glacier used to be and how it receded every year. And actually, in a little town in the Rockies, they're uh, called Banff. There's a museum, and in the museum they have photographs. And a family took a photograph, their own family photograph, every summer. Uh, with them in the photograph, all they were kind of interested in was themselves. But behind them was the Columbia ice field, and they did the same photograph for decades in the same place every year. And so they actually have a record, a history of this receding glacier going back to like the 1920s showing how it receded over time. And suppose experiences like that really stirred me to start thinking about, about climate change and the, and the environment. I started to read up a bit more on it. 
um, you know, everything from polar ice caps melting to sea levels rising, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and to be honest, probably with me, I was starting at a very low bar. So um, thankfully there's nobody here to, I know maybe Debbie heard this, probably forgotten it. But um, I did one time say in church that I was so not into gardening that I would happily concrete my um, garden and paint it green rather than have to actually deal with it. And I said that in a sermon somehow. Right, so that that's just me being really honest about where I was at a time. But the more I taught as a pastor, the more I realized that actually thinking about the environment and how we interact with the environment is just it's just there all of the time. And so what we started to do as a as a church is we started to, to work with our local community. We did a lot of community outreach, teaching people to grow their own food. And you don't get very far growing your own food before you really start thinking about the earth and how everything is finely balanced and how exactly the right nutrients are in the earth to grow stuff and and it opens your mind and your eyes then to things like where does food come from and why when i can grow food in the ground i get it in a plastic bag and in a shop and all that kind of stuff and then really i suppose i am one of the ultimate eco warriors in society because i cycle it's carbon neutral um I was thinking about how on-carbon neutral cycling really is, but that's beside the point. Um, but when we look at the Bible, when you open your Bible at the first page in Genesis, and I'm going to try not to go too much in depth into any of this stuff because it'll probably come out in other people's talks, we realise that everything starts with God creating the earth and humankind being in this garden. And in this garden, they are at peace with themselves, a peace with God, a peace with uh, with each other, and a peace with creation. And that shalom peace that we see in Genesis is, is actually what the work of re redemption, the work of restoration that we find um, is fulfillment of in the cross, is God restoring things back to the way he originally created them. And we read in, in Genesis 1 that when God created everything, he said that it was good. In fact, he said it was very good at the end of it all. And when he passed that over to Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply and, and steward the earth. And sometimes because of certain translations, we read the word subdue and we think, well, that means you can do what you like. But God gave his creation to us to look after on the understanding that he's coming back to find out what we did with what he gave us. And we know from passages like uh, the Psalms, like Psalm 24 verse 1, that says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But I want to just read a couple of verses from Romans 8. And these verses are, are fantastic, but really challenging. And it says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole earth has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until this present time. 
And so we see that God's desire to liberate planet Earth is to liberate it into the hands of his children to steward it really well. And that's very, very, very challenging, isn't it? Um, that God actually calls us to steward the earth and the work of redemption at the cross is to restore us into relationship to be his children and part of being his children is to go about his work and his work is the stewarding of this wonderful planet and, and Jesus told us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and when we ask ourselves what does the kingdom look like on earth as it is in heaven it looks like the garden where man was at peace with himself at peace with god at peace with creation you know that's what we're trying to restore things back to and so i think we have this mandate from heaven from god to to think about how we steward the earth and look after it but also that it brings glory to him and that we will be standing before God, giving an account for how we've stewarded everything that he's given us. And one of those things is this earth. Um, I don't want to steal particularly Gillian's thunder, but, but one of the things that, that I find fascinating is that, that we are part of systems. We are part of economic systems and uh, things like capitalism and materialism, which we just kind of quite often go with the flow on and we're part of and I think that one of the things that God is calling us to in this time is just to actually step back and go what am, what am I part of that's good and that's godly what can be redeemed and what do you actually I need to step away from and no longer choose to partner with and so as you listen to the different speakers tonight my hope is that we'll be challenged and stirred in, in lots of different ways but to think maybe differently, to think about what we can do and what we can't do, to, to wrestle with things, because probably a lot of us are going, well, what is this kind of climate change stuff? Is it really that important? Is it more important than, than other things? Um, how can we steward God's earth for the sake of our children and our grandchildren? <coughs> Questions like that can become really important too, but let's get into this information and um, think about it and allow ourselves to be challenged about it uh, and stirred and you don't have to agree with everything that you hear tonight you don't have to agree necessarily with the information you don't have to agree with the um outworking of that information but it's important that we engage so i'm going to pass on to laura who is going to come and talk to us first of all uh, it's great to have her here i'm going to give you a different microphone And if our clicker, the other half of our clicker appears, um, she'll move into the middle of the room. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm feeling really challenged already just from, from what you shared. I think I could just hand over to you for the rest of the night. Um, it's lovely to be here, everybody. Um, uh, my name's my name's Laura McFarland, by the way, um, but Laura Michael's my work name. Um, so I sort of go under these two pseudonyms. Um, but it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to see some familiar faces as well. So hello to all of you. And um, it's just really nice to be here to talk about this tonight. Um, I'm from Portadown uh, for my sins and uh, now living in Guildford for my sins um, and have spent a bit of time in Lurgan as well. So um, it's really lovely. Uh, to back in Lurgan tonight and I go to Portadown Elam and I've grown up there all my life 
and uh, I'm currently um, working in Queen's University as a lecturer in environmental planning and that was my, my subject um, that I studied as a student there as well. Um, so, you know, it's really nice to hear, Chris, just what you're saying about being honest and just appreciating where we've come from because I think on this subject, everybody's on a journey. Everybody is at a different point. Um, I don't know where all of you are in terms of your understanding of climate change, your appreciation of it as a Christian, um, your thoughts around it, some of the things you might struggle with. Um, and this is a really, a really pressing and current time for the church to engage on these issues. Wow. Oh, you great. Can I can take the <laughs> as much as I'm reluctant to. Um, but yeah, so we maybe all be in different places with this um but i think that the great thing is is that we're all here to have a conversation about it and so it's really it's really lovely and i feel really privileged to be able to share a little bit of that with you tonight i'm just going to talk a bit about just because i appreciate we could all be in different places talk a bit about climate change and the facts and um, what science is telling us about climate change and just some of the things that are emerging with regards to how it's affecting people around the world um, and that's really where we begin to break into the concern of the church um, and how we can understand this. And Stephen, or Chris, sorry, has given us a great breakdown already of our mandate as Christians to be stewards of the earth. Um, and that underpins everything um, that we do. And then just to kind of break us off, but I know all of our other speakers tonight are also going to be sharing about what can we do? Um, how can we act? What needs to change? Um, my, my feeling at the, at the core of all of this is that actually this is about, and pardon the pun, but it is about the nature of the heart, um, that we have to be stirred by, by God on these issues. Um, I think we can change our habits, we can you know, do different things, we can buy things differently, but actually I find that actually God really works in some of this stuff and actually it should come with a warning um, that there's a lot of unravelling that begins whenever you start to think around um, just how we exist as human beings with our feet on this earth that God has given to us. So just to give you a few things, um, hopefully you're all familiar with this topic or this term, the greenhouse effect. This is this wonderful um, insulation system that God gave this planet to keep us warm, to keep us safe, um, and to help us live healthy, happy lives on this planet. A really ingenious um, invention of his and that the sun's heat is trapped in our atmosphere that keeps us warm. Um, what we're seeing now is that greenhouse gases are exacerbating the greenhouse effect, that it is keeping us warmer perhaps than we would like to be. Um, so this is a major um, concept, obviously, that underpins everything we do. I'm sure everybody has heard of this. I'm not trying to um, preach to the choir here, um, but it's, it's important to appreciate this thing that was created to, for good. Um, and actually what we're seeing now is the exacerbation of that and the problems that that's creating. But it was there for good intention um, initially. What we're seeing as well as a result of increased greenhouse effect um, are the increased amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over time. And this is data taken from NASA, um, from reconstructing ice cores. And what we can see over time, and obviously this timeline is something obviously of dispute as well, um, that we, can, we could talk all night about too, I'm not denying that fact. Um, but what we can see from this is that although there are patterns of change over time in terms of carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere, we see this particular point in time um, of 1950, and that is a really significant date in the diary um, of the planet 
where we begin to see this exponential change um, that really does mark something in the planet's history um, that is different, um, that is significant, that we have to take into consideration. So you can see these patterns of increase and decrease over time, but where we are currently is, is basically off the scale um, in terms of parts per million. We're sort of sitting in and around 415, 420-odd parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the moment. So that's where we're sitting. That is also leading, obviously, to temperature rise as the greenhouse gas effect, or the greenhouse effect um, is exacerbated even further. So this is the timeline of temperature change from the average um, in the UK since 1884, largely the Industrial Revolution period. And you can see, obviously, the trend going in the direction towards the red. And these are the climate stripes, if you haven't seen these. Um, you can look these up for any country in the world, and I'll say globally as well. Um, so you've probably seen something like this. Um, it's been very successful as sort of a, a visual strategy for helping people become more aware um, of the, the temperature changes that we're seeing and that they are significant over history um, to really take that into consideration. What we're also seeing then is that we are now living in what's known as the Anthropocene. Um, and if you've heard anthro anything, you know that that's to do with people. So basically what we're stating now, what scientists are stating now, is that we are living in an era of time that human impacts are being felt at a planetary level. So it's not just about our individual activities having an impact at a local level. Collectively, humankind is impacting the world on a global scale, on a planetary scale. So we're actually moving into a different geological epoch. Um, where we're actually going to be able to detect this time in history in the stratospheres of, of stone um, and when future people come and do excavations, they'll be able to see this point in time. So we're seeing that and science is also telling us this, that we're living in this era of human-induced climate change. And this is the key point um, of dispute um, by American evangelicalists as well and by climate deniers more generally too that actually, okay, we're seeing climate change, but it's not because of us. And that's the, one of the major points. But actually, um, a piece of research by Cook in 2013 said that of all of the scientific papers that were taking a stance on anthropogenic global warming over 30 years, that there was a 97% consensus on the fact that human activity was in fact the main cause of climate change. So while we might perceive that perhaps the consensus might be 50-50 because we're presented with balanced views at all times through the media. So where we see viewpoints, we're always given the counter viewpoint. So there's this natural perception that, you know, okay, not everybody's going to think like that. Actually, there's a 97% consensus. And there's even an argument from that paper that actually it could be even higher than that because the papers that maybe didn't take a stance on whether anthropogenic climate change or global warming was actually occurring was because they just simply assumed that it was because it's so widely accepted in the, in the wider scientific um, focus in those papers. So, of all of those papers. So it was something like 4,000 papers um, had a 97% consensus over that time. So it really does stack up um, in terms of the research that's being carried out that human human impact is affecting climate change or human action is affecting climate change. So just to give a bit of background on that front. 
Now, just to, again, link that a little bit further, um, and you might not be able to read all of these, but these are Earth system trends. And you can see this trend that's known as the hockey stick trend, okay? So basically, from a point of 1950, we see an exponential rise. Remember that date of 1950 that we mentioned before. And you can see things here like carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide levels, methane across the top there, other things like tropical forest loss, um, shrimp aquaculture, I have not really any idea what that is. Um, but anyway, you can see that all of these are following this hockey stick, okay? They're all going in the same direction and they're all beginning, this point, this turn in the graph is all happening at this point of 1950. So we see this sort of really marked point in time. The only one where we don't see it here, which is quite interesting, is stratospheric ozone. There's probably a laser here, but I'm too afraid to press anything. There it is, okay. So you can see here, actually this one is flattening, and that's because we tackled the ozone. So we're actually working towards repairing the ozone. So we can see that change there. But if we match that and we look at, compare those Earth system trends to the socioeconomic trends of mankind. So, you can obviously see the pattern here. Um, so there's this commonality that exists between the Earth system trends and our socioeconomic trends, our populations, our GDP, our water use, urban population, so urbanization, transport, paper production, all of these things following this same pattern all at the point of 1950. So it really is quite uncanny. It's known as the Great Acceleration. Um, in terms of all of these systems increasing exponentially at this point in time. So we can really see this correlation occurring between what we do as people on this planet and what's happening to the planet itself. So this is some of the, this is a bit of a scary looking image, I'm sorry about that. Um, but this is the mapping of what the impacts will be felt on the planet compared to temperature increase, okay? So you can see here our sort of main um, systems of food, water, ecosystems, weather, um, and irreversible major events. And you can see there basically what we're, you know, some of the things that you'll recognize, you know, Chris mentioned glacial uh, decline, uh, water supply, water scarcity. We are aware of damage to coral reef already. Um, rising and falling crop yields, those are things that we're aware of, that are current, that are happening. Um, and we can see that being directly related to temperature increase. Um, some of the other things here that we'll see sort of be going beyond sort of this initial stage, um, you've got these concepts of feedback loops, tipping points, runaway effects, where we see the increase in temperature leading to significant events that would lead to an accelerated increase in global temperature. So things like the thawing of the, the permafrost, um, desalination, sea level rise, um, creating other kinds of shifts in our weather patterns, for example, that could accelerate um, other significant events in the on the planet. So there, there are sort of other elements to this that could accelerate that temperature rise. We're currently sitting at one degree temperature rise from sort of pre-industrial levels. The targets uh, based on COP25 from the Paris Agreement is 1.5 degree temperature rise and capping at that. However, our current commitments are going to take us to about 2.4 degree temperature rise as they stand at the moment. And that's with COP and the new COP 
um, even uh, taking us to that point. So we're still working towards a much higher rate of increase than we would like to see. So you can see there, we're, we're falling into that category of the dangerous feedback loops and significant events that could accelerate global warming. So all kinds of things to take in there, I appreciate. Um, and just to map that against what we actually need to do um, in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you can see um, where we need to get to um, in, to get a 1.5 degree cap on the temperature. Um, you can see the optimistic scenarios there just happening just at this point, and you can see this gap. So we're, we're about here, and in 10 years time, we're gonna be here, but there's actually a massive gap in ambition in terms of what's being promised from our policies by government um, and what will actually be achieved. Um, we're actually going to be working more on this kind of range um, if we sort of stay as we are at present. So those are our major things to consider um, in terms of our actions um, and what we do going forward. And um, that, that was um, quote by William Wilberforce is that you can no longer say that you didn't know, so sorry about that. Um, but there you go. So that's really where things stand um, at the moment. We're also moving into other areas of, of crises, biodiversity crises and planetary crises, um, with the decrease um, in the animal population. Um, we, we understand the issues regarding pollinators, for example, too. We're seeing significant decline um, of animal populations. Some are saying that we're living within the sixth mass extinction um, of the planet. But what I really want to talk about, and I'm probably going on a bit too long, try and speed up a wee bit, is how climate change is being felt unfairly across the planet. Um, Oxfam have done a study that states the world's poorest 50% um, are only responsible for around 10% of the global uh, carbon emissions on the planet um, that are leading to global warming, whereas the richest 10% are responsible for 50% of sort of lifestyle consumption emissions on the planet. So there's a major inequity here um, in terms of the people who are suffering, people who are most vulnerable. Um, and I don't know if anybody picked up on the, the speech by the Prime Minister of Tuvalu in advance of COP26. Um, some of these outlying countries, vulnerable countries, um, that are really feeling the effects of climate change in a way that we just simply can't understand because we are more capable um, of adapting to any change, we're more resilient, um, and so we don't feel the effects of climate change in the same way. Um, just to map this out in terms of the vulnerability index, um, so what this is basically showing us is that those that are at most risk are down here, that are also experiencing the highest population growth as well, so even more people will be vulnerable. And you can see that those are mostly in the African and Asian nations, whereas those in Europe and the Americas are at least risk um, or at least vulnerable um, from climate change impacts. So we can see this disparity. We can see that those who are most vulnerable are the poorest in the world. Those that cannot adapt, those that are going to be significantly impacted and also are the ones that have not caused the problems. And this is really where we begin to depart into what is our Christian mandate here. Um, is it a concern for the church? And we've talked a lot already about, the cre about creation and creation care. And that, I really believe, is pivotal um, to how we understand how we act on climate change. I agree wholeheartedly 
um, that we have responsibility for the planet, that we have been given this stewardship, this responsibility, this sense of representation of God himself on this earth. So this authority is not meant to be dominion, but it's meant to be representation. We are meant to be God's representatives and ambassadors on this planet in terms of how we use it. So these things really do matter. We've, we've already heard tonight as well that God places value on creation. He's even said that God uses creation to speak to men so that they're without excuse. It is one of his key gospel messages. His redemptive plan includes the planet. For God so loved the world. It's not the people on the world. It's everything. So those are things that we have to remember. And also that Christ is coming back to inherit the earth as well as we've, we've heard tonight too. But there is this dual um, discussion or this dual mandate that I would say is really crucial here that we have to appreciate as well. And it's the idea of the gospel and justice. And we are called uh, to bring justice. We are called to act justly on this planet. And what we're seeing now from this evidence is that climate and justice are inextricably linked. We cannot, we can no longer separate them. They are very much about what we do as Christians in our day-to-day -day lives. And we can't really get away from that anymore. Jesus identified with the least of these. You know, those that we clothe, those that we feed, those that we bring in. Those are climate refugees. Those are people around the world who are suffering from the impacts of climate change. We've been called to remember the poor. We've heard tonight and we've, we've seen the evidence that says that the poor are suffering because of climate change and because of the world's richest contributing to those impacts. So we know it. Um, we've been called to love our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? We live in a global world. We live in an environment where we're happy to get our phones from China, our avocados from Argentina, um, our chocolate and our coffee. We're very happy to get those things when it helps us, but we have to see that the relationship goes the other way as well. We've been called to act justly and we've been called to respond. So these things go hand in hand. I really, this has been something of a, contested debate over the years, I would say, whereby um, environmentalism has taken over um, how we see creation. Um, and that's right and good, but not at the expense of understanding how people live on the planet as well. I think the whole thing is connected. Um, and there's been often this sort of battle between the two in terms of what's most important, but actually it all matters. Um, and I think we have to just acknowledge that. You know, and really, we have to begin to see that what we're doing is impacting people. Madagascar is now moving into the, what's being defined as the first climate change-induced famine. Um, and there's famines happening like this all around the world at this time. We're seeing extreme weather events. We're seeing things that are making irre irreparable damage um, to communities. Communities that will no longer be in existence. Places like Tuvalu, for example. And there's this fantastic, well, not fantastic quote, but a really significant and challenging quote. Forget about making poverty history. Climate change will make poverty permanent. And this is something that we have to start to act against. What good is, are our missions, projects, the aid that we send, if it doesn't actually tackle the really underpinning problem of climate change for people around the world? 
Again, thinking about our consumption and our materialism, I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I know there's going to be lots around this as well, but it challenges us to the core to think about how we're living um, on the planet. When we see things like e-waste in Ghana, you know, our old phones, where do they go? And our clothes in Chile in the desert just being dumped. It starts to tell us something about who we are, how we're living on this planet, and that it just really has to change. And that's something that we really have to wake up, up to, unfortunately. And it's hard to hear it. And it's difficult because our systems, as we're hearing about, really enforce that. Um, it's difficult to shake that. So these are things to, to challenge us and to stir us. But as I mentioned, it's about the heart. And I think that's really where we have to just be open to the Lord to speak to us, to show us, and to give us the power to change, to give us the the motivation and the power from his spirit to really shift our actions and our behaviors because we know actually those things are the most difficult to really shift those things in our daily lives um, that we really don't even know that we're doing we don't even see it um, and really we need him to show that to us and one of these things that i found really helpful and um, because actually we're really good at loving our neighbor here in Northern Ireland. We are really, really good at this at the local scale and at the current scale and the future scale. So we're really good at this. We know how to do outreach. We know how to serve people. We know how to support people. We've got really, really good at that. But what I think we need to do is just extend this a little more. We need to increase our awareness of the connection with our global neighbors and how that, that our day-to-day -day choices are doing that we can serve and love our neighbors by simply considering the effects of the things that we do on the people that are providing them for us the resources the people who farm on the other side of the world who pick our coffee beans the people who make our clothes we have to appreciate how we're affecting them and appreciating then how that will have a lasting impact for the people who come and live on this earth after us so there's so much to think about um, but actually, we've already got what we need at this scale. We're really good at this. So I think we can really extend that to our global neighbours as well. So what can we do? And I'll not talk much more about this because I know there's going to be lots more for everyone else. But we've heard a lot, and Stephen and I have, have recently uh, facilitated a course that was run by Tear Fund, and uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe was a major contributor to that, and she's really excellent. I'd really recommend that you read up or follow her online. One of the big things she says is that we can talk about it. We can make this something that is part of life and that we acknowledge and we don't have to worry about the sort of feeling of it being a little bit different or a little bit irritating for others, but it's something that we can normalize. We can talk about climate change and that we have to do something about it. And there's so much power in our words in that sense. We can pray about it. We can ask the Lord to challenge us. We can ask him to show us opportunities and to change and to act and lead us to action. And this is just the final couple of things I want to say. Um, in the past, I've been a little bit skeptical about promoting individualism on climate change um, because largely um, governments and bigger organizations and global corporations have been very keen to put that weight on individuals to say, oh yeah, your carbon footprint, have you thought about that lately? You know, do you know that was coined um, by BP, um, they developed that term carbon footprint because they wanted to shift all of the responsibility away from them. 
um, and the fossil fuel industries who have hidden uh, climate change from, from the world for decades. So there's, there's stuff around that and I'll try not to ramp. Um, but anyway, so I've been, I've been uncomfortable with that for a while. But actually, we're at a point now where we need to do everything. And that's the reality. We need to change our, our personal habits. And we need to think about our consumption and our materialism. But we also need to act as citizens. And we can lobby and petition our MPs. We can speak out in lots of different ways. And Stephen's got loads of great tips on, on all of that as well and the things that we can do. We can work together collectively as a church, as a country, um, as a you know, as a group of any scale um, to take action. But largely as well, we can be a prophetic voice. And I think that's really crucial at this time. This is not a popular opinion. As, as much as we see it uh, becoming more prevalent in the media and in society, it's still not very popular. There's lots of opposition. Um, there were more climate, or there were more fossil fuel lobbyists at COP26 than any other type of lobbyists at the entire event. Um, that is still a pressing issue and we can act and we can do something about that um, but with the power of God as well and I think that's what makes it so exciting for the church to begin to respond and act on, on climate change. Um, so I'm going to leave it there, I'm going to stop talking but um, yeah if there's questions there we can have a chat. So thanks very much. Good Laura, but yeah. So um, thank you very much, Laura. You can go and sit down because um, we'll get you up again later. Um, but you know, I love I love that idea, even of just being a, a prophetic voice, because the prophetic is one of the things that is one of my things. And uh, you know, when I look around this evening, I kind of realise that you know, quite often being a prophetic voice is to choose to go against the norm, to show a different way forward, and that's something that we can all do. And take responsibility for it. But what I'd love you to do between roughly five minutes is just have a chat with the people that you're at the table with about what was it that, that stood out from that talk? What um, it was? It would be your one kind of takeaway thing. And what are you potentially going to do about it? So let's have five minutes just to have that wee chat about what you've heard, uh, what really challenged you, or what stood out. Uh, talk about it amongst yourselves and then we'll have our next speaker. <laughs>